You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and joining us today is State Representative Andrew Fink. His district covers Hillsdale and Branch Counties. Representative Fink, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Josh. Thanks again for having me on. So elections are on everyone's mind in various ways, from campaign finance to bills on election security. And we want to get to all of that, uh, starting with uh, Governor Whitmer's campaign finance uh, issues. She's been receiving lots of campaign donations over the past few months. Uh, And there's a loophole established by the Michigan Secretary of State back in the 80s that allows candidates raising funds for recall efforts to surpass the per donor limits on campaign contributions. The rule is based on trying to make everything fair. If recall candidates uh, who are running against the governor have no limits on campaign contributions, the governor shouldn't be at disadvantage with that limit. Uh, Due to various recall petitions that have been circulating, Governor Whitmer has claimed that her donors need not abide by the state campaign finance laws. But critics, including the Michigan GOP, have pointed out that this is totally contrary to the rule's meaning as Governor Whitmer is not actually running in a recall election and would be using this excess money to her advantage in the general election next year, um, giving her an unfair advantage. So they filed a lawsuit. And in response to that, just this past Friday, the breaking news, uh, Secretary Benson filed a response in federal court stating that unless new recall petitions are filed between now and January 1st, the governor would have to return the excess donations. It's not just a little bit. It's $3.4 million because that money could only be used legally to fight a recall. What's your reaction to all of this? Yeah, to put a little more detail in there, Josh, the the reason January 1st matters, I'm I'm sure, I haven't even read the filing, but uh, which was, you know, filed by the Attorney General's office on behalf of the Secretary of State. But the reason January 1st matters is because you can't be recalled in Michigan if you're a state office holder in the first quarter or last quarter of your term. So after January 1st, any efforts to recall the governor uh, are are de facto ineffective. Um, I should say de jure ineffective. They're de facto ineffective even now. But if if a you see you can understand like how the how the secretary of state interpreted this rule uh, back in the day, or at least why they would want to. I'm not sure that the text makes sense, but the theory, as you articulated, Josh, is that if a recall uh, committee, you know, committee trying to recall a governor doesn't have campaign finance donation limits, neither should the governor or the, the office holder being recalled. And you can certainly understand how that makes sense. But you have to have a start date, you know, a point at which mm-hmm. that that would become true, or else you wind up with what we have here uh, with Governor Whitmer, which is a, an exception kind of consuming the entirety of the rule. Um, and uh, I'm not the only person to, to point this out, but y- you know, you could imagine office holders willingly, even conspiring. I don't mean I don't mean criminally conspiring, but just sort of mm-hmm. um, uh, encouraging people to file recall petitions against them, because then the campaign finance limits would go away, and they could use it for whatever purpose they wanted. Uh, and so, if we're going to have these campaign finance limits, and I'm not, I'm not confident we have the best, op, you know, the most optimal regime there. But what we have in place does not make sense if Governor Whitmer was allowed to fundraise the way she did. So I think that it makes sense that Secretary Benson has said that they have to be returned uh, when a recall is technically impossible as of January 1st. I don't think it makes sense that she could keep the money or ever have taken the money under our current laws either. Again, given that the the threat of a recall was really never present, I mean, there was never, say, a set of petitions actually filed that would have uh, affected a recall election. So I don't think it was a good circumstance already. It certainly does make sense that as of January 1st, she has to return the money. I mean, in my opinion, she never should have taken it. Uh, but as a minimum standard, that, that adds up. 
do you think this is something that should be addressed with new laws to clarify how this works or the secretary of state just needs to update regulations and, and make it explicit? No, I would prefer that there be a statutory way yeah, that we address it statutorily. And I know that um, the folks on our elections committee, our elections chair and, and those folks have, have been uh, looking at that and working on it. But I'm going to tell you right now, the one thing I know about governor Whitmer is that she will not sign any bill that suggests she ever did anything wrong. So, um, that I, I, I just guarantee you that there won't be a statutory fix while she's still the governor because she's so sensitive about criticism of her. Uh, she really has the thinnest skin of any, you know, statewide successful politician I'm ever, I've ever been aware of. Um, so she's not she's not going to cooperate in fixing the law, but but it probably should be addressed again because I, I think that probably even the the well I, th I think that taking the donations in the first place. Uh, what is is and should be a problem. It's just not consistent with our with our campaign finance scheme. Uh, but certainly, there's no, there should be nothing stopping us from saying that while you can't even be recalled, you can't use the recall exception, so to speak, to right. to go above our our financial uh, contribution limits. That does not make any sense. And I want to turn to last Monday when the attorney general announced that three individuals were being charged with election misconduct related to the 2020 election. Uh, briefly, I want to just go through what exactly is being charged here. The first person, it's an assisted living facility employee who filled out about two dozen absentee ballots and forged signatures of residents. In Detroit, the second person is a grandmother who signed and mailed in an absentee ballot for her grandson. But he ended up voting in person on Election Day. They figured out it was double voting. Uh, and then the final individual, according to the AG's office, uh, developed and implemented a plan to obtain and control absentee ballots for legally incapacitated persons under her care and fraudulently submitted 26 absentee ballot applications and had them mailed to her. AG and Secretary of State are both touting this as evidence that the elections are strong and secure and that fraud is caught. Secretary Benson, uh, these charges send a clear message to those who promote claims of fraud that the current protocols we have in place work and protect and ensure the integrity of our elections. What, what was your reaction when you heard the news of these individuals being charged? Well, it's an interesting it's an ex interesting explanation from the Secretary of State and the Attorney General because you're you're dealing with an absence of complete evidence. I mean, that's just that's true of any kind of of any criminal activity you you never really know how much criminal activity is uncaptured because it escapes your data set you don't have it under your control as the state so um, I'm not sure that as a matter of uh, of logic they've they've got the best of the argument there but I would say that that the second circumstance there of the grandmother and the grandson and the absentee ballot and the in-person ballot you know that's something that um, that people sometimes do without realizing they're breaking. I mean, they should know because it says on there, you know, not, not to let somebody else fill out your ballot or whatever. I have a feeling that that probably happens uh, with some frequency among people who don't really have any intent to, to defraud our election system. But the first and the third example there are classic uh, instances of what's known as ballot harvesting. Mm -hmm. And an assisted living facility is the most classic location for this to, to, to happen. Uh, where you know one person uh, fully in control of his or her faculties uh, manipulates in some form the casting of ballots by all of these uh, folks living in the assisted living facility who uh, whether it's just a physical limitation not even knowing whether the ballot got there because they're not the ones who can check the mail uh, or some sort some sort of diminished mental capacity where you know they're either um, filling it out according to the instructions of another person or uh, 
or the other person is just able to take the ballot and fill it out himself or herself. I mean, that's exactly the kind of ba- of insecurity of ballots that we have to worry about. Um, and uh, I, I don't, I, again, I don't really know how, how Secretary Benson and, uh, and Attorney General Nessel can confidently state that we catch it every time. I mean, I, I doubt that's really what they think. Um, and that's what a lot of our election reform efforts this year have been uh, have been oriented around is just kind of how do we you know how do we make it less likely that a valid ballot is either cast by the wrong person, uh, cast by a person who's not eligible, uh, or uh, or the you know track of this ballot is is lost at some point uh, along the way from when it's printed until when it's counted. And I don't really think that the Secretary of State and the Attorney General are probably, I mean, I, I find this to be kind of alarming news. And it seems like they think this is supposed to be calming news. <laughs> um, but, but hearing that there are a couple dozen ballots being cast by one person a couple of times uh, in a single election, uh, obviously this, this number that we have, we, that we have you know, charged now is not enough to sway probably even a city council election or something, 52 mm-hmm. votes or whatever. But... Uh, but it, it's it's an example of exactly the kind of concern we have, which is why I, I think it's unfortunate that the governor is so cynical about our election reform efforts. This might be what you want to talk about next anyway, but we have to take care that the elections are, as everybody says, free and fair. I mean, that's the language that everyone has used to describe a good dem- mm-hmm. democratic, you know, meaning uh, election by essentially all the adults in the in the society. And so we kind of agree on that premise, and unfortunately right now we don't have a governor who's taking it very seriously. Let's talk about that um, because there are two bills this week that the governor ended up vetoing. Senate Bill 277, that would have required the maintenance of statewide qualified voter files and established processes where county clerks and the Social Security Administration death records would be used to cancel voter registrations of deceased people. And then Senate Bill 280 would have affected ballot petitions uh, as about the timeline for state canvassers. They'd have 100 days to complete their canvas. Uh, if it's right before the election, they've they've got to finish at least 100 days before. So uh, the minimum for filing is 160 days under that. Um, you voted for both of these bills. Uh, why do you think that these specific bills were important? And what did you think of Governor Whitmer vetoing them? I not only voted for both these bills, but both of these bills had House counterparts, which were, uh, well, in one case, nearly identical. Uh, and in the other case, um, even stronger. So the the... Let's talk first about the uh, approving of uh, mm-hmm. of ballots or, or of petition signatures. Um, that uh, the the House version of that bill, I think, was introduced by my colleague Brad Slaw from Ottawa County, and it had a sixty day shot clock. Mm-hmm. And this is all kind of springing out of not just the Unlock Michigan, but most acutely the Unlock Michigan petition, which was sat on by the by the Secretary of State, you know, the Department of State. I think we had the signatures turned in in October and. We didn't vote. We didn't get a chance to vote to to actually repeal it until July. So seven or eight months probably yeah. before uh, before the signatures were fine. And that was after uh, court battles about whether the board mm-hmm. had to uh, certify it, which essentially they did because they had no reason not to. I mean, the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, both recommended certification. So getting a shot clock on there just prevents the the process from being corrupted by politics. I mean, it's, these are political issues. I'm not trying to say mm-hmm. that they're not. Um, but the the canvassers had a clear legal duty to certify valid signatures, whether they like it or not, and that would be true on on uh, petition drives. I I don't agree with as well. So I mean, it's not it's really not a partisan issue. Um, but for some reason, again, the governor can't uh, can't 
can't handle sort of taking any new election reform seriously. So she vetoed it. The second one, the other the other bill, Senate Bill 277, I, I had a House version of this uh, that was nearly identical. And, and, you know, just as these things happen, you know, one gets passed out of the other chamber, whatever we this is the one that got passed by both chambers. Uh, but the text is nearly identical. And it, when it when this bill was in the House, it passed 109 to nothing when it was my bill in, in mm-hmm. the House. Uh, probably March, we passed this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 109 to nothing. I, th- I think it may have been at that point the first completely unanimous vote we had taken uh, in the House this year. And all it does is say that the essentially it increases the responsibility of the county clerk for removing dead voters from the voter rolls mm-hmm. and puts it on a schedule. So right now the county clerk uh, gives a list of deceased voters to local clerks who then remove the who are then supposed to remove the deceased voters. And the problem with that system is, I mean, I'd say there are a couple of things. One, when I was in the Marines, one of my bosses who, was, who had been an artillery officer always used to say, why are you touching that ammo? I mean, you get something, you know, you get this, this thing into two different hands. It just increases the likelihood that somebody makes a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so why have the county clerk uh, uh, get the list of deceased voters and then have the local clerks actually do the work with the list of deceased voters when the county clerk can do it? Mm-hmm. And it's not like it's this is some kind of overbearing, you know, over overburdensome thing on the county clerk's office. They, it's not a staffing question or something. It is a question of, uh, you know, the local clerks are the ones who see you on Election Day. So mm-hmm. it is certainly critical that they have the information about who's deceased and who's not. But getting the person's voter registration canceled as soon as we know the person is deceased is a common sense reform, which is why, again, it passed the elections committees unanimously, mm-hmm. passed the House unanimously. I don't remember what the vote on 277 was in the Senate. Um but in any event, it's, it shouldn't be controversial at all. Why the governor vetoed this one? I mean, I, I guess we can look at what she said. Uh, but I would again say that it's it's just kind of a, uh, a fear of taking any election reforms as credible uh, because it would suggest that we haven't been running elections perfectly uh, in the past, including during her administration and Secretary Benson's administration, although I don't recall Secretary Benson being against this reform either. I can tell you that the local clerks, like when, it, when I had the House version of, of Senate Bill 277, um, the House, there are the, uh, the local clerks, the, the Municipal Clerks Association and the County Clerks Association headed by, uh, or at least represented in that case by Hillsdale alum Justin Roebuck, who was the clerk in Ottawa County. And they came and testified in favor of it uh, because it, again, it just kind of put things on a regular schedule and, and made responsibilities clear and prevented confusion. Uh, none of this is partisan. Uh, but unfortunately, as I said to you the last time we talked, our governor is addicted to politics, so she has to find a way to make things partisan that are not, and she vetoed it. Uh, that's the best explanation I can give you. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot about optics. Um, her statement back from last week, she she says uh, these bills would divert key resources away from ensuring qualified Michigan residents can cast secured ballots in our elections. Um, they fail to advance the goals of ensuring every citizen has the constitutionally guaranteed right to vote. Um, but it's certainly it's, it's all about the, these optics. Is I that mean, what is she talking about? Right. What is she talking about? These people are dead. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, right, the people whose, whose rights to vote are affected by Senate Bill 277 are dead people. So uh, this is why I say it's just exasperating to, to I mean, it's, I, I'm sorry, it's, that's just a lie. I mean, it has nothing to do with mm-hmm. the rights of any citizen to vote. It has, it has to do with, with removing deceased voters from the voter rolls. Yeah, and I some some of the opposition I've seen seems to conflate it too with some some other states um, that have rules about removing voters if they haven't voted after a certain amount of time, and people are, are confused, thinking right. this legislation right. would do that, not realizing no, it's not. Oh, you haven't voted in twelve election cycles. No, it's literally 
social security administration says you're dead county clerk says you're dead yeah you know yeah. that that it's not it's there's no guesswork there no it, i mean it's it's it, that's a ridiculous that, that's truly a ridiculous thing for her to say and it's I, again it's unfortunately cynical i mean you're right there have been attempts in, in other states maybe in michigan in the past i don't recall but to to you know use a, a period of inactivity as a reason to remove you from the voter rolls and i think there are perfectly good arguments for that mm-hmm. but this is not that right exactly now again governor whitmer says she's vetoing these because they promote uh this this narrative as well uh, about election misconduct well, after after all of this and in the announcement that we already talked about, the three people who are being charged, there was a rally about 300 people at the Capitol um, who were demanding an audit of the 2020 election it happened just about a year ago. Uh, there was an audit that finally happened in Arizona. Uh, it was incredibly difficult to get, uh, but it happened last month, September, and it revealed that the outcome was the same. Uh, the votes that changed, Biden got an additional 100 votes. They found that Trump had 260 fewer than initially reported but these people are they're still arguing that we need more more audits more um more eyes on that election what's your message to those people um particularly as far as uh election integrity moving forward yeah i'm open to the idea that we don't have the optimal uh election audit laws right now i mean as we've just discussed over and over again it's not i don't think that it's realistic that we can change a statute on it while we have this governor who has to sign our legislation uh, but I'm open to the idea that, that we we could have better uh, audit laws. And I've, I've been kind of trying to talk with some of my colleagues who uh, have been around longer than I have about whether there are other states we can uh, we can look at who, who have better systems, that, that kind of thing. But I would also say that uh, I think that there, there were serious problems in the administration of the 2020 election, which have contributed to the sense that we didn't have a fair election. And I think that many of the bills that you and I have talked about in the last few months, and I talked with Martin Peterson about mm-hmm. when I was on this, uh, on his show uh, all spring, um, many of the of the legislation, many of the pieces of legislation that we've been working on, including the things we've just discussed, uh, should serve to uh, to improve our election administration going forward, and uh, and reduce the concern that we don't have. Uh, you know that folks don't have the confidence in in the election that they should. And I I just think that there are, that doing that work is just there's no reason to stop doing that work. And so the Arizona uh, audit doesn't show uh, an overturning of of the results. These are still good steps to take. I mean these are still again I mean removing the dead voters on a schedule with the person who is primarily responsible for managing the the voter file. Uh, that just makes sense. I mean it's it's a it's a good reform. And so the governor sort of treating it as a, again, as a strictly political thing where she has to kind of make this into part of her fight against President Trump or whatever, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't serve the people of our state very well. Uh, so that's, I guess that's kind of what, what I would say is that we have, we have work to do in reforming many areas of our election administration, uh, and I'm, I'm going to keep working on those. Do you think that more looking into 2020 here in Michigan is worth our time or should we just be looking forward at, at election reform legislatively? Well, I think I guess I think um, I think we should be looking at the election reform uh, with both the in both in the light of what we what we can learn from 2020 and in light of, of other things. I mean, an example of this would be we did a voter ID law. We've already we've we'd already passed it in the House. but We passed a, a, a version that the Senate had, had recently passed. Uh, to strengthen our voter ID law, and the main the main action there is that if you don't don't have your ID, 
when you go to vote, you can still uh, fill out a ballot, but it's mm-hmm. it's a provisional ballot unless you show up within six days with a valid ID to show who you are, uh, then your ballot's not cast. Currently, if you just sign an affidavit that says you are who you say you are and that you don't have your ID, then you cast a ballot and it, it is just counted. And so the, the, the possibilities that you know, you could be prosecuted for having filled out a false affidavit, but as far as I know, that's never happened. Um, so that, that I think was a, w- was a good move. And it, it's an argument that goes back much farther than 2020 to have stronger voter ID laws. Sure. I mean, I remember when I was a law student, I think Indiana had a new voter ID law that went to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, this, isn't, this is not a brand new idea. And no one in the legislature is trying to undermine the right of a citizen to vote. I mean, I really don't think that, that – uh, mm-hmm. A single person has anything other than, um, you know, the motive of recognizing that that good elections are fundamental to our work because we are elected officials, right? So if our people don't think that we were fairly elected, why would they respect any work that we do? Uh, and that uh, an un, an illegally cast ballot di- dilutes the vote of legitimate voters. That's the motivation here. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, it's it's it is both in light of what we have learned and, and, and may continue to learn about 2020 uh, and a much longer term view of what a of, of what a good secure election system is like. And you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm here with Representative Fink. I want to talk in this last portion about uh, House Bills 4270 and 5267, which were in regards to creating an exception to the sales tax for feminine hygiene products such as tampons. Uh, its advocates argued that, like prescription drugs uh, and food and food ingredients, uh, feminine hygiene products are essential and should not be taxed. Um, the bills passed the House uh, on a 94-13 vote, and you are one of the dissenting votes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation because people talk about this as the tampon tax. That's how it's described uh, frequently in the media. Um, and uh, that even ha- has, in, in some cases, some conversations have been created confusion about whether it's only tampons or other, <laughs> you know, feminine hygiene products is the is the general category, and it, it's all of them. It's not about one particular device. But the, you know, so the, the issue here is um, uh, the the advocates say like this is a medically necessary you know product that uh, uh, women need to have, um, and and so taxing it is just kind of inherently inappropriate. And I think that the problem there is uh, there are many things that are necessary. And uh, choosing to make the tax code less, I, I always say I, I want to have smooth tax laws. I want to have tax laws that uh, don't, uh, other than in the broadest sense, don't incentivize and disincentivize a whole ton of behavior uh, when we can avoid it because the government isn't necessarily great at knowing what it should encourage and what it should discourage. Um, and I just didn't think that the the actual tax here was the was the real issue. Um, I don't think that it was making it impossible. So one of one of my colleagues, uh, Sue Aller from Wolverine, she calculated that it's about seven dollars a year uh, for the average you know per person who buys mm-hmm. uh, tampons uh, or or other feminine hygiene products. And so it just doesn't seem like that's actually a a serious disincentive, and it becomes more of a of a rhetorical uh, argument. And my rhetorical, my, my, my reaction to the rhetorical argument is I don't like doing exceptions to the tax. We could make, we could argue for many other kinds of important uh, or even necessary things to be exempted, fr- exempted from sales tax. I mean, uh, uh, you know, replacing the brake pads on your car is also necessary to your safety. Uh, 
but we can't just do this over and over and over again. And so although it's it's sort of I mean that for at least some some folks they think it's kind of a rhetorical cudgel that they can they can beat us over with sort of saying you're you're anti-woman or something for opposing this. I, I think that's it's, it's ridiculous. I, I actually think one of the interesting things here is uh, is the sponsor Brian Postumus, uh, who is a friend of mine, uh, mm-hmm. and a, uh, he and I have worked together on on several different things and uh, had good you know frank conversations about this. I think one of the better points that he made is that this isn't really a uh, uh, a woman's issue. It's a it's 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 an you know this is a cost shared by households in general. Um, so that isn't really the best argument for it. You know, that it's, it's sort of uh, an issue that should be important to women. Uh, but I, again, I think the argument against it and the, and the one that I buy is just you know, making exceptions in the, ta- in the tax code, especially one that doesn't really make a difference uh, for, for a family budget if it's $7 a year. Uh, is just not, it's not worth uh, creating, you know, wh- what, I, what I call a bumpier tax code. And so there are lots, I mean, everybody's got a good idea about something that should be exempted from, from taxes, uh, and you just wind up with this endless, you know, this endless uh, kind of ball of wax. So uh, one of my law professors, I remember talking about this, but he used to say, you know, if, if the right guy whispers something in Chuck Schumer's ear, the tax code changes. Um, and, and if the tax code is bad, the, the bankruptcy code is even worse. Uh, those are federal statutes, obviously, but the point is, like, there's always some little wrinkle that, that somebody wants to throw into our tax code, uh, and trying to resist doing that, trying to resist using the tax code as a, as a uh, kind of a method of, of preferring and, and incentivizing and disincentivizing different products or what have you, uh, that, that's something I want to take seriously. So although I understand some people probably think it looks ridiculous, uh, that 15 of us, I think, or 13 of us, thir- you have the number 13, 13. yeah. 13 of us voted against uh, e- exempting this particular product from the sales tax. Uh, I, I just think it makes more sense. And, and the, you know, the last thing I'd say is that the sales tax is, uh, I think, arguably the fairest tax that we have. You know, what I don't like about property taxes is that you're taxed just for waking up every day. What I don't like about income taxes is that you're taxed for being productive. Uh, I don't like sales taxes exactly, but, but what I like about them better is that you're taxed for kind of choosing how you're interacting with the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, you go out and you make choices about what you're going to buy, how much you're going to spend, that sort of thing. Exempting food, I understand as a you know the most literal basic necessity, but uh, overall, choosing which things to tax and which things not to tax, I think is just a fool's errand. All right, well, that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, and we've had Representative Andrew Fink on. 